change depends on people and mm. groups of people. And if you present the media in sections like, you know, entertainment, lifestyle, technology, news, it depersonalizes it a little bit and it doesn't highlight to people that everyone is responsible for change. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Climactic. Hello, Mark. Hello, listeners. Rich! Oh my goodness! <laughs> Good to hear your voice, mate. Yes, I've been away for a while. Sorry, Mark. Well, that, I've been, that's I've quite alright. <laughs> I've been in the background. I've been uh, doing edits and things like that. But uh, it's nice to be back. Nice to be back. How are you, Mark? I'm doing really well, Rich. It was the uh, Victorian state election here last night, and I yes. was up at uh, one of the, the election parties for the Greens, Yep. and we were all all smiles, I think, at the end of the night. So we were just talking about that before we, we got on mic, and I think the results for Victoria are, are pretty good for the sake of the climate crisis and mm. for progressivism. I think a lot of the Greens fans like me were 99% happy. Labor did take a lot of the, the best ideas of the Greens and kind of run under them themselves. So yeah. it's kind of a, a victory for us that, that Labour's now got a pretty whopping majority in the state government. So um, I've been good, if busy, and uh, very happy election season is over now. Yeah, I guess it, guess it must be. We've got one coming up here in New South Wales in, in March, I think it is, and uh, probably along, run along the same lines, although I'm not sure what the uh, New South Wales Labour Party will do, whether they'll do the same thing. And I think it's very smart, actually. Dan Andrews and his team down there in Victoria were taking over the progressive vote by progressive policies. So if your mm. policies are winning, if they're getting up, then that's a, that's a big plus for the uh, environmental movement, isn't it, Mark? It is. It seems like Labour decided they're going to give people what they want, and luckily what people wanted was progressivism and progress and acknowledgement of climate change. Mm. So that's mm. a good thing. So it sounds like you might have a two-for-one elections. So you might have your federal and your state running uh, nearly the same time. That's the talk, Mark. I think that it has to definitely be around March for the New South Wales election, and it'll be up to Scott Morrison and his team to call the election for the federal parliament, and I think it tips are around May. Of course, they're going to have a look at last night as well with the uh, mm -hmm. the shellacking the Liberals got there. They're going, to, <laughs> they're going to have to go back to the drawing board. They may even put it back as far as possible to try and, you know, get... Repair the vehicle because the wheels it the really liberal bloodbath. Well, the the liberals really did come apart, didn't they? I mean, just watching the news from up here, we could see that they were running on a law and order campaign, and uh, Labor smartly were running on a more uh, progressive campaign. And I think that's what the people want. They're sick of this law and order stuff. Yeah, that's right. So actually, funnily enough, Rich, in this episode, we talk a bit about media and about news coverage, but from a very different perspective than the sort of top down. Murdoch and Fairfax Media, we, we talk about a grassroots community newspaper and media organization. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Mark. I had the pleasure of interviewing Liz Bastian. Uh, Liz Bastian is very well known in the Blue Mountains, and she's also becoming very well known around Australia as well. She's very much a community organizer. She has a background 
in climate adaptation for councils and things like that, but she's turned her hand to a, a different sort of news markets. It's a very interesting concept. It's called The Big Fix, and it is based around from the Blue Mountains, which is west of Sydney, uh, down through Lithgow, which is in the central west, Hawkesbury and the Penrith, and it focuses on the storytellers, as, as Liz will tell you in the interview. It comes out as a hard copy magazine. It's also available online. And the idea was to, to provide that alternative. People are listening or are reading newspapers increasingly online about the, as you say, top-down, we hear the Murdoch stories, and it's pretty desolate news, you know, what we're mm. hearing. This is coming from the grassroots up. This is a positive movement, and it connects to people, which is the main thing. And also, Liz has got this amazing ability to connect with all disparate groups in the Blue Mountains area, particularly in Blackheath, where she lives, and that's where I spoke to her uh, a couple of weeks ago now, and she was very kind to uh, give me time because she was up, she told me, till about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning fixing wow. up the video edits for The Big Fix, and she'd just come from a council <laughs> meeting, and I think she's on just about every board of every council. <laughs> uh, she was really nice of her to to take time to talk to me, but she was great, Mark. Yeah, this is a really great interview, and thanks for doing that, Rich. Thanks for your time as well, getting up to Blackheath to interview Liz. Um, no problem. It was because of you, actually, I heard about The Big Fix the first time. They picked up some of the Facebook posts you'd done on Climactic and ran with them as well. And I wasn't quite sure at that point what Big Fix was. I didn't know if it was just a, a Facebook sort of social media site or if it was uh, also a newspaper. But now I understand they do video as well. Is there any sign that they're going to maybe doing any podcasts on the horizon? Look, I don't know, Mark. I, I think that would be something that would enhance the big fix. If Liz, if you, if you're listening, <laughs> but uh, she she has got video up at the moment, as I say, and that's the next focus. But certainly, podcasting is becoming the main arm. I think of people like you know looking to get their message out there, and the big fix is one of those community organisations that I think would benefit from a podcast. No plus Absolutely. there at all. <laughs> well, they're definitely someone I'd love to work more with in future. So if you listeners enjoy this, and if you have any sort of positive stories you'd like to tell to sort of collaborate with maybe both us and The Big Fix on getting a story out in print and in podcast and maybe in video, just uh, let us know at hello at climactic.fm. Thanks so much for bringing us this interview, Rich. It's so good to have you back on the show. Your voice is a real comfort. I can't wait to bring you guys this interview. Thanks very much, Mark. Yeah, just one point for listeners. It is a, a an interview that I did with Permaculture Plus, which is my other podcast. And so there is a, a, quite a, an emphasis on permaculture. Liz is a well-known permaculturalist. And I think she was just down your way, uh, Mark, down near Geelong. Just uh, Yeah, you... she was. That's, that's how I actually got onto this whole yeah. thing. I heard her on the Sustainable Hour out of Geelong, a great program. Yep. And I uh, reached out and said, hey, you're still in Melbourne. And no, she wasn't. She'd already left. Yes. So, uh, But then because I was talking, I set up this interview on your behalf. Sorry about that. That's not right. <laughs> no problem at all. That's fine. And no, this is great. I love that this is coming to us as kind of a... a Permaculture plus climactic collaboration as well. We're going to have a link to your show as well in the show notes, Rich, and I hope people check it out. Thank you very much, Mark. All right, here's the interview with Liz Bastian. Okay, hello, Liz. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thanks very much for your time today. I really do appreciate it, Liz. I hope you don't mind me calling you a legendary figure here in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales, and your work is also well known throughout Australia. 
Um, you're very much a person guided by permaculture, its ethics and principles. Can you explain this system of thinking to our listeners and how it has played such an important role in your life? The thing I love about permaculture is that it's a systems design approach to looking at life using systems thinking, and that means that you look at the entire system. It's a holistic way of looking at the world. And when we think about problems that we're facing, things like, you know, what people determine as wicked problems, problems that aren't easy to fix, permaculture has a really a great way of approaching that because you look at the entire system and find as many ways as possible to come at the problems. So within each problem, there is a solution. Yes, so that's one of the um, wonderful principles of Mm. permaculture that um, when you look at the problem, you also find the solution and that has guided everything I've done and it's one of the reasons that I now work with The Big Fix because one of the problems I identified a number of years ago was the problem of media and Mm. how that is influencing the way people think and respond and realised that the media was therefore an important part of the solution, that we needed to look at media as well. And I'll ask you a question about that a little bit later on because that's a fascinating point. I just want to ask, what role does the permaculture core ethic of earth care play in the battle against climate change at personal, community and global levels to you? Earth care critically is, is what we need to be doing because obviously we rely on this planet to survive. It's our, how, we, how we live. It's our life force, really. So in terms of what I do, apart from teaching permaculture, I am very involved in gardening myself and mm. we run a community farm here in Blackheath and that farm is uh, set in a World Heritage listed area so it's constantly looking at how our food growing impacts on a world heritage area and how they can coexist and tell us what gave you the idea for this fantastic project so the big fix originally started as a climate action group in blackheath the big fix is a not-for-profit organization and our mission is to change the story to grow a collaborative solutions focused culture which is a very permaculture approach. It started from being a climate action group in Blackheath many years ago, Mm -hmm. and then we realised that the issues were far more than just climate. We needed to look at all sorts of things within the system because climate is one part of the system, and we needed to look at how to engage the whole community in reassessing what we do as people on this planet and how we can move forward together, Mm. not in a way that's divisive, but in a way that brings everyone more or less onto the same page and working collaboratively to find solutions. So one of the things that I determined when I started doing a, a PhD on this was that there was a lot of research around the fact that media was increasing depression and anxiety in communities. Mm. And if people are depressed and anxious, they tend to switch off and disengage. Yeah. Or they, um, you know, they really start living it up and say, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. So mm. the media was really affecting people. So I thought that it would be a really good idea for us to focus on changing the story in the media. And we started by initially just doing social media posts. So we decided to occupy Facebook and every day I produced a Solutions Digest where I shared seven solution stories in every sector Mm. and in every area from around the world. 
and then moved on to a weekly Solutions Digest where I picked the best of the stories of the week, so an edited version, and put three stories in that, the best three stories from every sector. So looking at stories about what individuals were doing, what community groups were doing, what organisations, educators and researchers, government, artists, business, what all these different sectors were doing. And the idea for doing that was to address the fact that really change depends on people and Mm. groups of people. And if you present the media in sections like, you know, entertainment, lifestyle, technology, news, it depersonalises it a little bit and it doesn't highlight to people that everyone is responsible for change. And so I also wanted to highlight that people are working in every area so Mm. that while the news is full of stories that um, operate on the principle of if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. In actual fact, the reality is that the world is full of thousands and thousands and millions of people working hard to make the world a better place and their stories aren't being shared in the same way that the, the kind of horrifying stories are being shared. So I really wanted to give airtime to the people doing things to make the world a better place, not the people destroying the world, not give them the kudos of always being in the media. And we we jokingly say that we focus on the fixing news, not the breaking news. Yeah. It's a fascinating point you made about the link between mental health and news. Mm. That's a very interesting point. And just a reminder that we'll have all the links for the big fix in the show notes. Just to follow on from that, Liz, um, I'd really like to chat a little bit more about your relatively new community-connected local media service that you run as part of the Big Fix. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it fits in with your changing the story ethos? Yeah, we really believe that media needs to be not-for-profit and owned by the community, representing all the sectors of the community. So what we're working on is working with alliances that represent all those sectors that I mentioned earlier, from individuals to community groups to government to business to education and sharing their stories in a community. And so what we've done is we've looked at a variety of strategies so that we can reach as many people as possible. We've created a quarterly magazine where we share solution stories from each sector. We've also created a website where the stories go up, but we also have all the means for people to connect to their community. So we have a calendar of every single event that's Mm. on in the town. We have a list of every organisation in town so people can find ways to connect. So in Blackheath, which has a population of Mm 4,400, we have over 80 community groups and all those community groups are represented on this news website We also have a section for our storytellers because we think the storytellers are the really critical, the really critical and underestimated part of our communities because they really facilitate change. And if you think of a community as an ecosystem or as a forest, if you were looking in permaculture at a desert and you wanted to repopulate a desert and turn it back into, you know, a healthy ecosystem, 
you would look at ways to accelerate that. No, I mean, if you left nature alone, nature would fix itself. But mm -hmm. to accelerate succession in permaculture, we plant nitrogen-fixing species mm -hmm. so that we can bring, we can turn a sort of a dry area into an area that has more nutrients, deeper roots, uh, protection, all those sorts of things. Okay. Um, and so I think the storytellers are the nitrogen-fixing species. And uh, we, we look at a, a plain, like a deserted plain, it's full of, you know, if you think socially, lots and lots of competing grassroots organisations, yeah. but their roots are only grass deep, they're a bacterial network. To give them more power and to give them more strength, we need to get them to collaborate and through storytelling, yeah. we can get grassroots organisations to collaborate and then we turn that into a fungal network. So you have like a mycelial network cool. connecting everyone up. So we think the storytelling is quite critical. So we focus on that on our news site. And then we also have now a monthly micro news, which is a small newsletter that gets distributed all around town, has every event in it, a calendar of events for that month and the latest updated news stories. And once a week, we've started producing a video news story for our town. Wow. And this is a template that can be replicated in any community. That really resonates. There's the, uh, the whole storytelling as the basis for community. I think that's a fantastic idea. I'd love to see something like this out of the Central West, you know, centred either on Orange or, or on Bathurst. And my next question was going to be, and I think you answered it just then, but is it a replicable thing? Can, you, can it be a template that can be taken to other communities and then adapted. Yes, ways. yes. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the main achievements, as I see it, for the big fix is connecting disparate groups and people, as you said, and you've got the knack of bringing people together, Liz. So what's your secret? I like people. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. That's lovely. That's an easy, easy answer too. <laughs> and I also like having fun. I think... If you throw a party that people want to come to, yes. you attract people. So rather than going and saying, we should do this or, you know, things are really bad, we must do this, we have to do this and we've got to fight this, I just think throw a party that's the most fun possible and people will come. Sure. So yeah. for the community farm, for example, we have an absolute ball out there and every week on Facebook we post all the photos of people laughing their heads mm. off and having a great time mm. and having wonderful lunches and people flock to the farm and we have really, you know, lovely big social groups of people working there, not because they need to come and have to work but because they just love connecting up with everyone. That's great. And we'll have uh, all the links to that in the, in the show notes. I'd just like to move on a little bit here and just ask you, uh, how important do you think community action is in obtaining progress on important local issues such as climate change, homelessness and lack of youth services? Community actions, you know, really quite critical because we know what our needs are and mm -hmm. we have to be able to identify and express them and find out ways to collaborate to meet our needs. In Blackheath, we have what I like to call our hyper-local government, which is a Blackheath and Community Alliance that represents mm. almost all the groups in town yeah. and meets about every six weeks and discusses the issues in town and how we can work together on those. And because there are so many groups there, it's really easy to get our local, state and federal government reps to attend our meetings because okay. they know that mm -hmm. they can speak to a lot of people at once. 
I'm also on a number of other alliances. So I'm on the Stronger Families Alliance in the Blue Mountains, mm. which brings together all the community sector as well as government and other organisations. And that takes a collective impact approach, which is looking at how together we can work and, and be on the same page and have goals so that, again, it's about collaboration, getting everybody to help address things like homelessness and youth unemployment and um, climate change, all the issues that our communities face. And so linked to that Stronger Families Alliance, for example, there's a Heading Home Ending Homelessness project mm -hmm. that has emerged and um, the communities in this area are working hard to tackle issues around homelessness and and poverty and hunger. And so it's very much collaborative and it goes right from community volunteers through to community groups, through to organisations, through to government, through to businesses participating, So, and then people doing research on it. So, you know, utilising all the sectors to create systemic change because you want to change the system, you have to involve all the parts of the system. And in permaculture, you would do that looking at an ecosystem and seeing every part of the ecosystem and how everything is intertwined. And socially, you can't just get a group together, which is what often happens. You know, you have climate action groups or whatever, but they're monocultures. Hmm. They're always the same people. And you many, many times hear people say, I feel like I'm always preaching to the converted. Yes. And what I'm trying to say, and, you know, there's a handful of really dedicated people who go to all the meetings and turn up everywhere, mm. the same people nearly all the time. But that is, you know, in permaculture, we'd look at that and say, you know, that's just like planting one big paddock of one crop. Yeah. And really we know that diversity is what's necessary to repair an ecosystem and to repair a social system. We need to bring everyone along with us and we need to have people from every sector and people of every persuasion. And one of the reasons I focus on solutions with The Big Fix is that people, regardless of political beliefs or other value bases, nearly everybody wants to be associated with solutions. Mm. If you see a really good solution in a community, you'll see every politician there having their photograph taken with True. the solution because people <laughs> like solutions. Mm. And the idea is that if you engage alliances of community members and they love the solutions that you're focusing on and that are encouraging more solutions to be generated, they will then share their stories to all their networks and suddenly you overcome media polarisation and media fragmentation because everyone's on board, everyone wants more of the solutions, makes people feel good yes. to know that you've solved a problem and that it's possible to solve more problems. Mm -hmm. And so... It's a very generative process and it's what you would do if you were a parent. You don't tell your little child all the really horrific, horrible things that are going on and say, you should do this, you should do this all the time. I mean, you, you might, but you wouldn't be parenting in the best possible way. Mm. You encourage young people to see hope and possibility and you focus on what they've done well and how they've succeeded mm. and they get so proud of that and feel so happy exactly. that they exactly. want to do something else that's good and, and it sort of follows on, it follows it? on. Yeah. it's yeah. a no-brainer and it really is a no-brainer mm. and you with your child you don't want to 
you know, just slot your child into knowing one type of person. You'd like to encourage them to see the diversity that exists in a community and in the world so that they're exposed to lots of ideas and lots of experiences. And you just use your same parenting skills in mm. community development because we all need nurturing and support and we need encouragement to move forward because life's not easy. It's quite hard, in fact, <laughs> and we need to all sort of pitch in and bolster one another up and, and give ourselves a hand and give ourselves a pat on the back and inspire one another. And It's a theory of mine, and a couple of people have rejected it and said that this uh, my theory is wrong, but it's something that my, my grandparents grew up in the Depression in England, and they said it was... It was what everybody did. Community was what everybody helped each other out because you had to in those days. And they went through the, the Second World War. They lived in London during the Blitz, that sort of thing. And community was taken as red. And I think we've gotten away from that in a, in a way, but the sort of initiative that you're talking about is sort of bringing us back to that community. that was, And also, you know, you know what? It's actually fun. <laughs> it's like really good fun. And... It's part of that when people talk about a gift economy, if you start giving rather than just expecting or wanting, you actually start giving to your community, you'll discover that the payback is far greater than any yeah. money. Yes. People have gotten into an unfortunate habit because life can be hard and because people are struggling to survive, but people have absorbed that dreadful quote that time is money and that's just such an appalling way of looking at the world yes. because time is not money. You can put that sort of framework onto it if you like, but therefore, you know, people, if they think time is money, they don't want to allocate time to being involved in a community organisation because they're not earning anything back for it in terms of money. Mm. But the return that you get connecting and being part of something bigger than yourself is something that people from the beginning of time have always recognised that, you know, that's why stories of the Bible and the Quran and all our other stories have encouraged us to become part of community, to stop work one day a week yeah. and connect to your community and to think about something bigger than yourself, whether it's God or community or nature or Gaia, whatever it is, there is something that's way bigger than us. And if we become part of that, become part of something bigger than ourselves, we stop being, you know, self-absorbed and going round and round in circles inside ourselves. It's like if you go out into the garden, if I'm ever stressed or anxious, the best antidote is to go and garden for a while. Mm. Within half an hour, I completely forget myself mm. and my problems mm. and I just become a part of the entire garden and nature and I just suddenly feel in the right place and yeah. I feel at peace and I feel connected and I'm surrounded by beauty because nature is so beautiful. People do get their fingers burnt with with community because it's challenging. Mm -hmm. You can meet some very annoying people and it's a you know it can be a battle of wills and it can be all sorts of things, but it's worth it. It's worth looking at how to work together at that micro level at your small, you know, in your family, in your community. Because if my, my attitude is if we can't get it right in this beautiful, benign country, 
in our you know relatively non-threatening small communities mm. how on earth can we expect nations to not argue and fight and cause war and i think it really is a we really owe it to the world to work out how to get it right in the microcosm so that on the the grander scale people will be able to do it better do you think that people and and i'll put myself in this category people tend to leave decision making to their local council, their state government, their federal government, thinking, you know, oh, well, they must have, must know something because they wouldn't be there, whereas really they should be putting more into the community in which they live, lobbying local councils. And I know I'm talking about issues like climate change, but lobbying local councils and finding out what's best for the community and then talking to elected representatives, not just at election time, but in between times as well. Is that the sort of thing that you're, you're talking uh, about? Abs- absolutely. Look, mm. we're all connected. It's a, One of the reasons I do stories from every sector is to show people that everyone is doing things to make the world a better place and that you can't burden shift and say it's up to somebody else. It's up to all of us, every single one of us, to create this world. And all of those structures, councils, government, local government, federal government, they're all just constructs. Really, they are bunches of individuals. Mm. You know, we are all individuals working in whatever area we are. You can't work for a council and talk about the community as though there's somebody out there and not the council because every single council person lives in the community. You can't be in the community and talk about government having responsibility. The government is made up of other individuals in the community. There's no difference. We are all individuals doing our bit and the I think the sort of imperative at the moment is so urgent that we need every single person on deck mm. to um, turn things around and make things better because the the problems are are deep and entrenched and you can't just think somebody else will fix it it's a very immature childlike attitude it's like thinking mummy will fix everything. Well, it's not, you know. There's some interesting articles that have been written. Viktor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp, said he survived the concentration camp and he observed others surviving the concentration camp because when they were in the line going to be sent into, you know, to be sent into the gas chamber, mm. they would sort of go this way or that way And he said a lot of people right until the moment they were sent into the gas chamber couldn't believe that this was happening and they couldn't believe that anybody would do this to them. They were absolutely deeply convinced that someone would stop this and someone would save them. You know, they just couldn't believe it that that this was was happening and they just thought, no, no, someone will will stop this, someone will save me. But he said what I and, and the other ones who survived recognises that it's completely up to us Mm. and we looked for every way possible to find a way to talk to the guards or think of something to do that would turn our fate around because it was up to us to to do something and and then they helped one another as well and worked collaboratively to do it and and it's critical didn't they victor frankl said that they had a goal whether it was family whether it was it was something that they had to aim for rather than just 
accept their fate. It was mm. like, no, I'm going to go. Again, being part year. of something bigger than yourself. Mm. There's someone outside of yourself, something bigger than yourself that's worth, makes life worth fighting for. And we're not fighting. I don't like using war to war no, sort of okay. analogies or war language, but, you know, makes life worth living really. Yeah. And it, it gives you that extra little boost of energy to drive you forward and to make you want to keep trying. So I'd just like to finish uh, with a question from left field, if, if you don't mind. So you know, I've taken a little bit of time to off this. Um, I was speaking to your friend Meg McGowan in an interview for Permaculture Plus podcast recently, uh, and she says to say hello, by the way. Thank you. And, <laughs> and I love listening to her. She was uh, very eloquent about the need to employ widely the permaculture principle of value and diversity, and you did mention that before. But on a human level, this included, she said, listening and learning from people who don't necessarily agree with your views and may even be aggressively opposed and vice versa. So firstly, do you agree with Meg on that? And secondly, what would be your tips on how to talk to people who, say, deny that climate change is occurring? How would you approach that? A great management writer called Stephen Covey once said, seek first to understand and then be understood. And I think that's a, a really good principle. And also when you look at nonviolent communication, a lot of anger is a sign of an unmet need. So a lot of people get upset and angry when they don't feel they're being listened to. So developing your listening skills, attempting to understand other people is very, very important to try and understand where their arguments come from and why they think what they do. It, you can't help but grow as a human if you increase your understanding of others mm -hmm. and if you have respect for others. And I think that people can voice their opinion at some point if they're not interested in being engaged in discussion then I think the simplest thing is is just to walk away, but at least have attempted to listen and to understand. It's, it's a complex thing, but I think that we are all on this planet together and in the same way that we believe every species deserves to to live and have life that mm -hmm. you know that obviously that applies to people mm -hmm. as well. Every yeah. human is there, and we need to respect each human. And, and listen to them as far as possible. And then, you know, at a certain point, I just don't engage in it anymore. Like I wouldn't engage in discussions about a flat earth society. <laughs> you know, like there's only so much time I have in, in my life, but as, you know, where possible when I'm meeting somebody, I do try to listen as carefully as yeah. I can. I think Meg said something about, uh, like, you know, if you do take the time to listen to people, then eventually they'll show you the courtesy of, uh, of listening back. Look, thank you so much, Liz. This has been incredible. I've really enjoyed it. And I usually leave the last few minutes of the interview just so if I've missed anything that uh, you'd like to cover or if there's any events or you'd like to chat about a topic, please go ahead. I think that storytelling is, you know, at, at its core, storytelling is what all of us do. Every morning we get up and we tell ourselves stories. We tell ourselves stories about the day. We tell ourselves stories about our mm. lives and, and where we're heading. I think it's very important that we also listen to ourselves, that we try to understand ourselves and our stories and how we tick and value the stories that we tell ourselves without judgment. Just learn to understand them, observe who we are and why we think what we do, if possible, if we can work that out. And then 
then start to rethink some of our stories, not just accept stories that we've you know been given hook, line and sinker from the, the wider world. So, for example, a number of years ago I had quite a serious health problem and I thought that, you know, perhaps that was going to be the end of my life in that year. And so I started reading about how other people had coped with death and how they died with dignity And I read Montaigne and he lived in a time that socially and environmentally was probably way worse than what we're living in now. And he had a near-death experience and he said he discovered that death was very, very good at killing you. It did its job brilliantly with, you know, 100% successful result without fail. And he said, but I realised then that our job is not to give death a hand. Our job is to live and to live as fully and completely as possible until the very moment that death takes us. And that really helped me deal with a lot of things in life. Um, Fortunately, I didn't die. And I'm really grateful now that I, I took that attitude because in that year, I could have spent a lot of time feeling very sorry for myself, but I decided to die livingly, not live dyingly. And I think that the same applies to me with climate change and with any other frightening things that I sometimes have to process. And I think, well, you know what, whatever happens in the future, we are all going to die. That's a fact. Death does its job with absolute precision and perfection, but our job is to live whether we're heading towards a mass extinction or not, until the very moment each of us dies, our job is to live and life is extraordinary and we need to live it fully into the edges and holding hands with one another and having a good time. (laughs) And what a great way to finish. Thank you again very much, Liz Bastian. Pleasure. Thank you, Rich. And once again, that was special guest Liz Bastian of The Big Fix, speaking to our very own Rich Bowden. Thank you so much for doing that interview, Rich, and thank you, Liz, for your time. Now, as I said last week, we're really keen to use Climactic to help give back to this community, and we actually now have a special announcement from one of our previous guests, Trash Bags on Tour, about some new events they've got coming up in December. Let's have a listen. I'm back with Melissa from Trash Bags on Tour, and they've got some exciting news. We've got some tours coming up before the end of the year. So, Mel, can you tell me about this first one that's just coming up in only, uh, well, actually less than a week as people are hearing this? Yeah, that's true. So, um, next one is going to be 2nd of December. We're going to hit Great Ocean Road again, which we haven't done in a few months, so it's exciting. And this time, if anyone has already been on one, we're going to do it a bit different way this time. So, we're going to head first to the Memorial Arch, do the beach clean there, get that done first thing in the morning so that people are not tired in the afternoon. Um, and then we're going to have delicious lunch at the Rogueway Brewery that we visited before as well. Big fan of that. That sounds yes. fantastic. It's very, very yummy. And that's where we're going to have our zero waste talk as well from Madeline. So again, really great tips, how to become more sustainable, how to reduce your waste. And this time on the tour as well, we're finally going to be able to sell some um, products as well. Um, So if you don't have your key cup yet or your produce bags or straws or anything like that, you're going to be able to get some with us now, which is really exciting. And then, of course, we're going to do 
the main bit. So we're going to go spot wild koalas again, and we're going to go to a 12 apostles, log out gorge, all that stuff. So all in all, it's going to be an amazing day. And the best part is that we've been able to reduce the ticket price just to $50 per person, including all of the itinerary items and the lunch. And that's thanks to our sponsor, Sightseeing Tours Australia. So they are actually paying most part of the day. So your $50 ticket price just basically covers for the lunch and includes a $25 donation directly to Tangara Blue Foundation, which is pretty amazing. That is incredible. That is such a great yeah. uh, partnership to have. And, and thank you so much to Sightseeing Tours Australia for doing that. Hmm. So 50 bucks with lunch and with a $25 donation to Tangara Blue, and you get to go on the lovely Tour of the Great Ocean Road and pick up some rubbish on the way as well. Yeah, exactly. Great. So with a $25 donation from every ticket going to Tangaroa Blue, will Haiti Taylor at all be, be welcome, the founder of Tangaroa Blue, on any of these tours in future? Of course. Um, so we've been wanting to meet Haiti, obviously, since day one, which unfortunately still hasn't happened because our timings just keep crossing. And yeah, it's very unfair that you've already met her like so many times. It and is we very still haven't. unfair. It's <laughs> highly unfair. But yeah, absolutely. Haiti, if you're listening to this, you definitely have to come on board um, on one of our tours. So just contact us and we'll make it work. We promise. So guys, if you haven't been on a Trash Bags on tour yet, I highly recommend you check this one out. The Great Ocean Road is not only a lovely thing to do, and you can bring along some friends of yours from Melbourne who haven't been out of the city in a while or haven't seen the sights, and also get them exposed to some really important sustainability topics as well. So there's not just this tour on the 2nd of December, right, Mel? There is some more coming up as well? Yeah, so if um, 2nd of December doesn't work for you, or you feel like you've seen Great Ocean Road one too many times, we actually are already um, scheduled to go on Phillip Island as well. So that one would be happening on the 10th of December, which is a Monday. So I know that it might bring issues with people who work Monday to Friday, but... Or help out all the hospital people who exactly. have Monday and Tuesday off. So we're looking after you too, hospital crew. Yeah, exactly. So we kind of wanted to tap into those people as well who find Saturdays and Sundays to be a bit tricky. So we thought we'll trial a weekday departure as well. Um, and basically this one, um, I feel like this one might be more appealing to people who already have started their sustainability trip. So it's a bit more educational so we have quite a few different talks lined up which are going to be super interesting they've been just amazing on Phillip Island so we have a talk from um, some of the rangers about the work that they do we have someone coming and give a talk from their plastic free Phillip Island organization obviously going to do a clean as well so yeah it's a really full-on day a lot of information I feel but I think it's going to be really really interesting and really rewarding especially for people who've already done our tours a new destination different kind of focus on sustainability and a later departure which people are going to love since the penguins don't come out until after the sunset well I'm looking forward to that hopefully I make the cut for the advanced tour if I've learned <laughs> enough on the previous I think three I've been on so yeah. I'm really looking forward to that and thank you so much Mel yeah no worries and that does it for another episode of climactic thank you all so much for listening i'm personally hugely relieved to have the victorian state elections behind us with such a good result and i cannot wait to bring you some new projects in future if you have any interest in joining climactic as an interviewer or if you've got a great story to tell and you'd like to let us help you tell it please just get in touch at hello at climactic.fm 
This episode was made possible by this week's interviewer, co-founder and editor Rich Bowden, producer Caleb Fidicaro, composer Greg Grassi, designer Abigail Hawkins, and senior advisor Gretchen Miller. Thanks, folks, and have a great week. The Climactic Collective. Collective.